I think we really did a lot to show ourselves to be a responsible citizen. Yes, we will take on youth who are really struggling and have problems, but at the same time, we're going to be a responsible part of the uh, community in Burlington. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Mark Redmond was on a glide path to success. Fresh out of Villanova, he landed a plum job with a major insurance company and had a cushy apartment on Park Avenue. Money, status, and job security were all firmly in his grasp. Then he walked away and left it all behind. Redmond moved into Covenant House, a shelter for homeless people and runaway teens located in Times Square, which was described by Rolling Stone at that time as the sleaziest block in America. His pay? $12 a week. Since 2003, Mark Redmond has been executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services, which provides housing and support services for the homeless, at-risk, and foster care youth in Vermont. He's also been a storyteller on The Moth. I began my conversation with Redmond by asking him about his new memoir, titled Called. It's a big decision to write a memoir, to decide you're at the point in your life that's memoir-worthy. What made you figure you'd finally reached that moment? Yeah, it's funny. A friend of mine uh, emailed me and said, memoir, that's what you write, right? Before you're ready to die. I was like, well, I'm feeling pretty healthy. <laughs> So it's interesting. I've been telling these stories on stage. You know, I've been on The Moth a couple of times and other podcasts like Risk and Strangers. And then I had a one person storytelling show on Broadway for one night in October of 2019. And six days later, I had a one person storytelling show at the Flint and both of them sold out, which is pretty cool. And after the one at the Flint, I went over to American Flatbread with a bunch of my friends who'd been at the show. And one of them said to me, hey, I like these stories. When do we see them in book form? And after that, I was like, you know, that's like the fifth person, all of whom don't know each other, you know, totally different. All have said that. When do we see these in book form? So to me, that was kind of a sign in life. When five different people tell you the same thing from five different corners, you should pay attention. And then when the pandemic happened and at Spectrum, everybody really was assigned to work from home. I thought, well, I have a half hour in the morning and a half hour at home that, that I'm saving commuting. So there's an hour a day I didn't have before. Why don't I use it to write? So that's that's how I ended up writing. Well, let's begin at the beginning, although this is not exactly the beginning, but the, the dramatic turn in your life, um, one of the early ones, is when you give up a job with an insurance company on Madison Avenue and you uh, walk away from that, you ditch your Park Avenue apartment to work for the poor. What led you to do such a crazy thing at a young age? You know, there was a series of circumstances that had happened. I think the short answer is, you know, here you're right. I had this cushy job. I was in a multi-billion dollar corporation. I had the nice apartment with the patio and the car and uh, the suits and all that. And I started volunteering one day a week at Covenant House, which was in Times Square. And uh, Times Square then was really scary. Today it's like Disney, but back then it was like the center of porn, prostitution, crime, drugs. So I would go there one day a week after work and hand out brownies and play basketball with the kids and things like that. And I began to really enjoy going to it. And 
I heard that they had a group of people there who actually lived there, part of what we call the faith community, and they lived there. It was a one-year commitment, and you lived there and worked there. You got $12 a week. That was it, and you made a one-year commitment. So I heard about that. I was kind of interested. It still seemed like a far-flung idea. I do remember going back to my multi-billion dollar corporation and in a meeting with a senior vice president and him saying to us, okay, we're at now, I forget the numbers, 300 billion in assets. And by the end of the decade, we have to get to 500 billion in assets. And that's the goal. That's what you should all be focused on working for this company. And I remember thinking that is not my goal. That is just not what I want to dedicate. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's immoral. I'm not saying, you know, that somebody else go, but that's not what I want to dedicate myself to. And so I quit my job, much to uh, my friend's surprise. They all thought I was insane, but to me, it felt like the sanest thing I had ever done. So I literally went from a Friday walking down Madison Avenue in a three-piece suit to on a Monday, I was in jeans and sneakers in one of the most dangerous crime-ridden neighborhoods of New York City, uh, living not even in an apartment. I was in a, a room across from a crack house and a strip club and uh, started working with homeless teenagers. So that that's the short version, David, <laughs> of how I ended up making that decision. I assume most friends thought you were nuts, but were there any who got it? even colleagues at the insurance company. You know what? I do remember the people at that insurance company, I thought they'd be outraged or, and a couple of them were like, hey, you know what? This is what I wish I was doing. You know, a couple of them were jealous actually. And in terms of other people, there was a, a Monsignor back in my home parish in Long Island in East Iceland. And I remember going to see him and saying, everybody thinks I'm crazy doing this, but I'm gonna give up this business career and move into this faith community and get $12 a week. And he was so happy for me. He was so encouraging. He kept saying, what faith, what faith you have? I can't believe what kind of faith you have, you know? And that was very, I love, he's since passed away, but that really was somebody who really encouraged me and thought it was a good thing that I was doing. So I kind of clung to that at those moments when I was like, wow, am I making this huge mistake? So in, in all the laudable talk of working with, you know, a struggling community of people with substance use disorder issues and homelessness, there were some real challenges and threats. Um, and you describe those when you went to work at another shelter, my brother's place, when um, one of the residents murdered the nun who worked there with you. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I tell people this work that I do is wonderful. You know, I meet kids today who are doing really well and overcome their addictions, whatever. But it doesn't always work out that way. And there is an element of danger to this work. And that was an incident. A terrible, terrible thing happened. We had two homes, one in the South Bronx, one in Brooklyn. And one of the boys, he was 19 years old. He was a uh, crack addict addicted to crack cocaine. And uh, at night during the Super Bowl, he got into the house and he stabbed to death, 65-year-old nun, uh, because she was the business manager. And I got the call at 10 at night. I was living in Brooklyn. Super Bowl had just ended. My favorite team of all time, the Giants, had just won. And I got this call from a staff member that Sister Virginia had been stabbed to death. 
So I had to drive like, you know, 100 miles an hour up to the South Bronx. I'll never forget seeing like 30 police cars all with the lights going in front of the house and going inside. And the kids were scared. The other staff were scared. And it was terrible. It was just one of those that in this work to this day at Spectrum, always in the back of your mind is that something terrible could happen. You know, a kid could get killed or a suicide or an overdose or staff could get hurt. But you never you never think it's going to happen. But this time it did happen. How did that affect you? Um, I think after that, I stayed there maybe a year more. After that, I stayed with it. I left there to go join another nonprofit. And then I really started to think, you know, this has just been a mistake. I've been doing this now for like eight years. And I don't think these kids really can be helped. I don't think they want to be helped. One of them killed somebody who I cared about. And maybe I should go back to the business world. You know, maybe I should go sell stocks or bonds, make a lot of money. You know, my wife was in graduate school. We had a baby. And maybe this has been a big mistake. That's really where I was at after that. So what kept you in the game? Uh, at this small, non another nonprofit I was at in Brooklyn, and it was kind of an administrative job, which I didn't like, it was just pushing papers. And we got a new supervisor in, and I had known him from Covenant House. And he called and said, you know, we have a 20-bed residence for homeless teenage boys in Williamsburg, and the director there is doing a terrible job, and I'm going to fire him. I think you should take it over. And I said, no, thank you, because I know who those kids are, and they're like the kids I worked with in South Bronx. And one of them killed one of my coworkers. So uh, thanks for the offer. And he kept asking and I kept saying no. And he kept asking and I finally said maybe. And he kept asking and I finally said yes. And I got there and I uncovered a lot of corruption. Staff were stealing food from the place. They were selling drugs to the kids. They were having, it was just awful. My life was threatened. Uh, terrible things happened. But I learned from this supervisor how to be a leader, how to run a program that really can help homeless teenagers. And we got rid of all the corruption and we put together a team and we created one of the best programs in New York City for homeless teenagers. And at that point, I realized this really was my life's direction and that it was worth sticking in this, no matter how difficult it was, and that by learning from him, I could help others to learn how to help this population of youth. What was the key or what is the key to a successful program to help uh, these teens? I think, first of all, you have to have the right people. And if, if you have people in there who are doing some of the things these men were doing, which is stealing from the kids and, steal, you know, you're, you can try as you might. So you need to have people around you who are dedicated, compassionate, smart, well-trained. So you need that. You know one person, the lone hero thing won't work. But if you have a, create a team of people like that, then you've got a real shot. Now you talk about after that, you need structure, you need order. Uh, I'm a big believer that you have kids who've grown up in chaos and disorder and poverty and they need to live in a place that's clean and it's orderly. It's not chaotic. You have decent food. Those are the basics. And then you need staff who really, really care and really have their heart in it, like we do here at Spectrum. And then, then you can get into more clinical things. You need groups, you need clinical, you need clinicians. But you need those basics of a good team that's going to work together 
and create an environment that is conducive of caring and respect and really love for that for this group of youth. You write in your memoir about listening to your dreams and actually relying on your dreams for guidance at key moments in your life. Give me an example of a dream that influenced a decision you made. So I actually, so the dream thing came about, I write in my book, I got divorced and I, I fell into a major, major depression where I had to seek professional help. And it's very interesting how many people have read this book and are focusing on that chapter. And I did go see, I had a therapist and a psychiatrist and I went on medication. And at one point I turned to my therapist, I was just desperate. You know, I was losing weight, I could hardly work, I could hardly sleep. And I said, what else should I be doing? And he said, pay attention to your dreams. Try and remember what they are and come back and tell me. So uh, I now have binders and pages and pages and, you know, files of dreams. In fact, I had one last night. I think the one that influenced me the most that I wrote in the book is, you know, I was just all, I was just in a terrible space. And I had this dream that I was jogging and I was running and I was sweating and I, I couldn't get my cadence down. I was tripping over myself. And this other runner comes by me and it's a male and he looks fit and he looks strong and he's pumping away and he passes me and he pats me on the back to encouraging me, you know, keep going. And I looked up and uh, it's me. It's me. And uh, that dream really spoke to me that as difficult a time as that was, the deepest part of me, as fragile and as broken as I was, there was still a Mark Redman that was filled with strength and confidence and was going to kind of help myself get through this and go on to be a better and deeper person. So that's one of thousands of dreams, you know, that, I, that I've had, but that one really stuck, you know? Was there a decision that that dream enabled you to make? That's a good question. I think of anything, it enabled me to keep carrying on. I had a dream, I was offered a very, I won't say who it was, I was very offered a very tempting position outside of Spectrum about three years ago. In fact, I was certain I was going to take it. I was ready to call our board president and say, my time at Spectrum is over. And it's funny, I, before I went to bed, I called my wife. I said, I think I'm going to take this other job. And she, uh, she said to me, well, I'll be, I'll be support you. But I, you have to know, all you're going to be doing is putting out fires. So anyway, <laughs> that night I, had, I went to bed and I had this dream that uh, I was somewhere in a house and there was some, a toaster caught fire. And I kept putting the fire out and the toaster kept bursting into flames no matter how many times. So honestly, I woke up and I thought, I'm not taking that job. <laughs> My dream is telling me that that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be putting out fires. And I really don't want to be putting out fires for the next couple of years. I'd rather stay at Spectrum and create new and, and good things that will help young people. So that was that was the point where I really I called my wife and I said, I'm not going to take the job. She was like, I thought for sure you were going to take it. I said, no, one of my dreams warned me off. So you came to Spectrum. What year was it? 2003, February and 18th, 2003. At that time, Spectrum had a pretty bad rap in the city of Burlington. It was a place where troubled kids you know, migrated and caused trouble for local merchants. And um, it was a financial mess. What'd you take that job for? 
I, here's another dream. I was, I had this dream that I was driving to, it was north and I'm in a suit and tie and I get to this big ballroom and the mayor of Stanford, Connecticut, who I knew was there. And he introduces me to the crowd. And he said, this man is taking on a very, very difficult job. He's going to need help. I want to know all you people out there, who's going to help him. And one by one, all these hands go in there. I'll help. I'll help. I'll help. I literally woke up the next morning and said to my wife, as risky as it is, I think I should take this job. I think I should quit my job. You should quit your job. We should take our two-month-old baby and move to Vermont. So I think I took it because I really did see there was tremendous potential at Spectrum. There were problems. I always told the story in the book. I went in to see the police chief and said, hey, I'm the new director of Spectrum. And she looked at me and said, Spectrum. You have a long way to go to get the reputation of your agency back. And some of it was fair, David, and some of it was. Some of it was scapegoating of Spectrum. There was a lot of problems on Church Street then with young people committing crimes. And it was very easy for people to blame Spectrum for every single thing that went wrong on Church Street. And that wasn't fair. Uh, but there were things that needed to change, you know. I remember meeting with the downtown police and they said, you know, a kid commits a crime on Church Street. We're in hot pursuit. He ducks into Spectrum and your staff are like, sorry, officer, you know, can't help. And I had to say to our staff, listen, we will deal with tough kids. We'll deal with kids who've done all kinds of things with all kinds of problems. We'll even get them a pro bono lawyer. But we can't shield people from the consequences of their actions. So there were people at Spectrum who didn't agree with my approach, but they don't work here anymore. And uh, I think we really did a lot to show ourselves to be a responsible citizen. Yes, we will take on youth who are really struggling and have problems, but at the same time, we're gonna be a responsible part of the uh, community in Burlington. And it took a while, you know, it just it didn't snap my finger. It took a while for us to get there, but thankfully we do have a really good reputation in Burlington today. Talk about the range of services that Spectrum offers. Everybody knows us for dealing with homeless teens. And it's true. We have a drop-in center on Church Street. Come on in Monday to Friday, free hot lunch, free hot dinner. We don't need your Social Security number. We don't need your Medicaid number. Take a shower. Do your laundry. Tons of donated clothes. Use the computers. We'll help you look for a job. Go back to school. Health clinic, community health center, health clinic, right in, right in the building, you know. And then upstairs, we have 16 beds where young people can live. And in the winter, we open 10 more beds in a warming shelter. So we deal with home. But we, then we have, uh, we now up to seven licensed mental health and substance abuse counselors. Last year, they saw over 400 young people. Not all those kids were homeless. Some are from middle class. Some of the wealthiest families in Vermont have teenagers who are suffering from addiction or, or uh, mental health difficulties or both. We do mentoring. We have 100 volunteer mentors. Now, not all those kids are homeless. They mentor mostly low-income children a lot. Could be a single mom raising a teenage boy who wants a positive influence in his life. We do that. We started a car detailing business four years ago up in Williston to teach kids how to work. We have other staff who will find jobs for kids in restaurants, construction companies. 
So we do a wide range of things. And two months ago, we opened in St. Albans. We opened a drop-in center in St. Albans because we know there are homeless teens and at-risk teens in that city who need help. So we had some donations come in and we opened up in St. Albans. So there's a lot going on at Spectrum, a lot. You deal with a lot of very complex and intractable problems, substance use disorder, homelessness. We hear about these things and often feel like, you know, nothing works. These kids end up back on the street using again. Tell me about what works and what makes the difference between, you know, a kid who uh, you're able to help. I think that's a good question. And I think it's that we offer a range of services, right? So we start with the basic needs. Come on in and get a sandwich, right? That young person may want to come in and get a sandwich every day for six months and that's it. They're not ready for whatever reason to go out and look for a job, you know? But they may be six months from now and we have the staff who are ready. They may need substance abuse counseling desperately. They don't want it. That's okay. When they're ready for it, we have the licensed substance abuse and mental health counsel right here on staff. You know, they may be interested in detailing cars they're not ready for, but when they are, great. Hey, let's go up and see this car dealing business. You may want to work there. They may need a mentor, but when they're ready for a mentor. So, you know, there's a young woman now, one of our stars, she's coming to see me tomorrow, wants me to sign the book. And uh, first year she was with us. She was so fragile emotionally. The best she could do was live in our shelter, go into our drop-in center. Now she's got a full-time job. She's about this close to a bachelor's degree, but she had to get there. You know what I mean? Our staff were with her every step of the way. She had to make the, to try and force those services on her wouldn't have worked. So to me, it's the range of services that we have. And we're not just referring kids, oh, go here, go there. We have it all in-house. That, to me, is what makes Spectrum work. What would you like to see at a policy level, a political level, uh, that would really help, would go, you know, some of the longest way to helping the population of people who you work with? So we led the fight. There's a picture of Governor Douglas signing a bill at Spectrum Drop-In Center in 2007 because they used to, we used to, in Vermont, discharge people from foster care at eight, on their 18th birthday. Say, hey, it's your 18th birthday. Great. Here's a cake. And, uh, you know, now you have to leave your group home, leave your foster home. Thank goodness we led the fight to move that up to age 22. That was a big victory. Here's what still needs to happen. We see a lot of young people with a, a mental health diagnosis. And they're in the children's mental health system. So they could be at Howard Center, Laraway, and they actually did pretty well. Now they turn 18, David. The diagnosis they had that allowed them to get help in the children's mental health system doesn't qualify, isn't severe enough for the adult mental health system, or their IQ is a point of too high. So we've had kids with an IQ of 71 or 72 with a mental health diagnosis can't get into the adult side. Where do they end up? They end up homeless. So, and frankly, eventually, a lot of them end up in the correction system, you know, which is just a, a, a human cost potential and then the financial potential when you add the numbers of what it costs in Vermont to keep somebody in a jail cell and the cost of public safety. So I would love to see us. Now, that's, that's not just a Vermont problem. That's a federal problem, you know, 
how do we stop doing that? We have this kind of arbitrary, oops, here's what your IQ has to be. Oops, you need this diagnosis. We need to relook at that. So that's a policy change I would love to see made. You have become a storyteller, even a celebrated storyteller, uh, telling stories on The Moth, and as you mentioned earlier, at stand-up shows that you've done. I wonder if we could close by having you tell us a story. Well, the story I opened the book with, I love this story, a young woman who'd been homeless and came to us and then had great work ethic, worked, went to school, got her own apartment, uh, was in college and called me, uh, she's out of spectrum, called me on New Year's Eve day and said, Mark, my, my car won't pass inspection. It needs four new tires and I don't have the money for the tires. And I can't, if I can't get that car going, I can't start my new full-time job on Monday. And I said, full-time job? I thought you were going to college. She said, oh, I'm doing a full-time job and 15 credits at Castleton State. I was like, man. So I said, she goes, what's your advice? I said, my advice is go to Groton Garage, get the new tires and send me the bill. Spectrum will pay for this. So she said, that's not what I'm asking. I'm just asking for advice. I said, that is my advice. Take it or leave it. So anyway, she, I got off the phone and my wife is uh, crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, because you and I, when I, when we were 22, 23, and we had a car that wouldn't pass inspection, we had 15 people we could call, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, friends who had money. And these kids don't. They don't. They have you and they have your coworkers at Spectrum. So uh, anyway, I got off the phone and I called Girlington Garage and we got the car, the tires. She passed inspection. She went to college. She got a degree. And today she is a social worker in Vermont helping people. So I, that's how I opened the book. And uh, it's funny, the girl said to me, why are you doing this for me? And I said, because your family, and this is what family does. Family looks out for each other and helps each other over the rough spots in life. And I know that was true for me when I was 22. It was true for me when I was 62. And I'm sure it's been true for you. But I'm fortunate. I've been very blessed to be surrounded by, you know, a family that was able to help me that way. And so I think that's the mission of Spectrum, to reach out and help young people who haven't had those kind of benefits. Well, Mark Redman, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for I, having me on, David. I appreciate it. Mark Redmond is the executive director of Spectrum Youth and Family Services. His new memoir is titled Called. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.